Our bodies, including our sexuality, are either enslaved by sin or freed by Jesus. My name is Peter Ting. My wife and I are members here at WSBC, and it's my privilege and my joy today to bring you the Lord's Word. We've been working through and studying the book of Luke, and so this week we're jumping back 1 Corinthians. So I remember when my family first moved into our current apartment three years ago. And so we were walking through the apartment and looking at everything, and we saw that there were some small lines and some small cracks that were on the kitchen countertop. It was just right next to the sink. And so they were small, and some were really faint, and just little hairline cracks. And so we asked the landlord about this. And so she gave us the usual, oh, it's fine. You can just brush it off. You can wipe it off. It's clean. It's fine. Uh, eventually, we decided that it was still a desirable location that we wanted to be in, and we liked the space. So we ultimately decided that it wouldn't be a huge problem for us, and we still rented the space. However, over the past few years, through normal wear and tear, water seeps in, it eats away and erodes at those once small cracks and they become larger and they become more and more damaged. As a church, we may have topics that we just kind of clean off and brush off, or we may not speak and teach into directly every week. But like those cracks, it's something that can cause damage eventually if it's not tended to. The topic of sex and sexual immorality is one of those topics where it may not be discussed frequently, but it can damage the church over time. We last left off in 1 Corinthians 6, and up to this point in this letter to the church in Corinth, Paul has been admonishing them for a variety of reasons. There was division within the church. People were following and taking pride in specific leaders and preachers of the church, and they relied heavily on worldly wisdom. He also touched about how the church should approach civil matters and conflict resolution, and how the Corinthian church was resorting to local authorities and local governing, governing leaders to resolve church disputes. And now he was addressing a topic that they have grown numb to as well, sexual immorality. Paul wrote in chapter 5 regarding a specific case that wasn't even tolerated amongst the pagans, that a man had taken his father's wife as his own. And so today's topic, we continue on in this topic of sexual immorality. Friends, as we study today's scripture, we need to reflect on our own hearts, and we need to be reminded that we are not our own. And as we learn from God's word together, and in preparing today's sermon, I think the way to sum up today's scripture is this. Our bodies, including our sexuality, are either enslaved by sin or freed by Jesus. As we approach the scripture today, we'll be looking at these with three big main points regarding our sex, our bodies and sex. And so this will be serving as the three main points for today. Three points being confusion, connection, and the cost. These points specifically are about confusion, how society tries to define sex. Connection is the impact of sex in our connection with the church. And cost is the cost of sexual immorality. 
as we study the word together today, it's my prayer that we all see that how sex is designed and how it combines both a physical and a spiritual together, that we are still all in need of salvation and sanctification. Please follow along in your copy of God's word as I read today's scripture from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 to 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by everything, by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. As we look at our first point, the topic of confusion, we'll be looking specifically at verses 12 to 13. And we can see here that Paul is addressing some of the confusion that has come up in the Corinthian church because of their reliance on the culture and society around them when they were setting norms and limits regarding sex. So to address these confusion points, we're going to go into three specific areas that Paul brings up here that the church has been misguided and confused about. The first one is acceptance. They believed everything was lawful and acceptable to do. They accepted what was happening around them in their culture. And so this is seen first by the quote that Paul uses. You can see the first part of this verse, it's in quotations. All things are lawful for me. This phrase was widely circulated within the Corinthian culture. It's a slogan to express the idea that the body is permitted to do anything and everything that it desires and craves, and it must have worked its way from popular culture into the church. And so now it was being spoken by the members of the Corinthian church. Now, when we say all things are legal in this context, it really does include all things, including prostitution. Remember, the Corinthian culture and the city of Corinth was this large port cities that had sexuality prevalent throughout it. There was many temples and there were many traders and travelers that in and out through the city. There were many pagan temples that involved prostitutes and sex as a means of worship, such as the temple for Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And so the idea of this quote here, all things are lawful for me, really indicated that everything in that culture was fine, even from a legal standpoint. And so because of that culture and because of that context of that day, this phrase was, has seeped its way into the church. And within the church, it's become a quote to allow for the Corinthian Christians to justify their actions. We often take some of these Christian liberties ourselves to excuse us for our actions. We may justify our sinful actions with the culture of this day, or what's popular, or even what we read from different opinion posts or from news outlets. 
Rather than influencing the world around us, we are influenced and put their opinions and sources on a higher value in our hearts than what the Bible has instructed and taught us. So while prostitution and sexual promiscuity may have been legal at that time, Paul follows this quote, all things are lawful, with his statement, but not all things are helpful. Here he is challenging the Corinthian church. And so in the modern day church, we to view, and our modern day church now, to view sexuality and sex as what God has created and what God has defined since the very beginning. And even viewing gender as defined by God in Genesis, male and female, he created them. More and more laws nowadays are trying to make way for transgender rights. While this seems to be a hot topic issue now, and it's one that's gaining legal traction, it's actually something that's been around for thousands of years. It's not something new to God. It's not a 21st century issue. Sexual confusion and sexual identity has been around since Sodom and Gomorrah. Now on the Western countries, it's because we have an emphasis on individual rights and freedoms that we need to have these rights. The transgender movement really focuses that individuals may face severe mental health issues and negative self-image if they're forced to live with a gender identity that they don't feel comfortable in. But this definition shows that the church needs to be unified together in how we should be identified and that our identity, most importantly, is in Christ, not on how we feel about ourselves or what is comfortable for ourselves. While more court cases and laws could be made in the future to protect transgender rights, it is important and similar to here in Corinth how there's sexually immoral practices such as prostitution that are becoming more and more normalized and legal. Christians need to take an active role. It may mean changing legislation, it may not be, but rather changing society, living with biblical standards, loving others, and using the Bible as our norms for how we live. The second point here is another uh, A word, it's addiction. So the first one, uh, we looked at acceptance. The second one is addiction. In verse 12, it says, I will not be dominated by anything. Again, this is after Paul states the phrase again, all things are lawful for me. And so every time he says that phrase, he kind of counteracts it with his thoughts. The verb use word here of dominating is implying under the power of or something that has control or power over. And so later on, it's going to be the same verb that's used in the next chapter when Paul is talking about the context of a husband and a wife having authority over each other's bodies. He's asking here the church to examine and see if anything has taken the top spot in our hearts, in our lives, forming an addiction. Basically, again, under the legal idea that everything is permissible, and not everything is helpful. Here, being dominated means that some, we need to reflect on if something has captured our hearts, on any addictions that we have, specifically ones that would compromise our freedom to glorify God with our bodies. And so we have to ask ourselves, like the Corinthian church, is Jesus Christ the Lord over every part, every area of our life? Or are there things that have seeped in, addictions that are taking the top spot away from him. The third confusion word here uh, for point one is appetite. And so we look at verse 13 and 14, appetites. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, 
and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. Again, here Paul uses quotations in the text to show that he's using probably another popular saying that's happening in the Corinthian culture. Food is meant for the stomach, stomach for food. And so again, this is the Corinthian church that's giving justification, taking liberties for their sexual immorality by comparing sex with just hunger or appetite. So when the body's hungry, they eat. So logically then, if they have sexual and physical desires, they justify that it's also okay to engage in fornication. In this line of reasoning, the church was making an excuse for engaging and fulfilling in these lustful sexual urges, likening these appetites similar to food. How we have hunger pains and we need to be fulfilled, so then if we have sexual desires, likewise, we should fulfill them as well. But Paul specifically emphasizes here to the Corinthian church that they've separated this act of sex that is only a physical. But it's not just a physical need. There is a spiritual need. There's a spiritual side of sex as well. And so oftentimes we may do that now where we divide our lives to a holy side and a secular side. At the time, Greek culture and philosophy of dualism view on life. And so the human body was evil, was physical, and then the soul was good, was spiritual. And so this dualism kind of gave some liberty and some freedom that whatever the body did, it's okay, it could eat, it could have sex because it was evil, so it had the liberty to behave in that way, while the soul remained good. And so this dualism was a confusion on how they had prescribed for us to compartmentalize our lives. We can still see that today where we say, okay, well, this is what I'm like during the workday, and this is what I'm like when I'm at Bible study, when I'm at church. There should not be this divide. In his book, Sex and a Broken World, Paul David Tripp talks about this dangerous dichotomy, how we categorize our life into a holy and religious side, and then the other as non-holy. And he states this, Life cannot be sectored into the spiritual and the secular, God and mind, religious and non-religious, faith and facts, or whatever other categories you would use to separate things that are Godward and those that are not. There is no purely secular domain of your life. It is all spiritual. From an even broader view, I suggest that you read the book Total Truth, uh, Liberating Christianity from its Cultural Captivity by Nancy Piercy. And so she addresses also this dichotomy, this split, in the model of a house, the two floors that Christians adopt, that there is a sacred side and there's a secular split as well. There's confusion in this world now, and a lot of Christian communities have this confusion that, that we understand salvation is given to us, that we have faith in Jesus, but then we don't see how that plays out in our work, how that plays out in our everyday, that there's a continual process of sanctification in what we do. Back to the text here, we can see that these confused Corinthians have incorrectly compared sex with eating. However, Paul points out the design of sex and the body isn't similar at all with God's design for food and for the stomach. It's important to notice that sexual purity means that it isn't as simple as just a need that needs to be fulfilled. You see, God has connected our bodies and sex together with our spiritual well-being and our spiritual state. These are intertwined together, and they're not two disconnected things. So we can't categorize sex as secular and try to separate it from our spiritual health. It's not as simple to break it down just as an appetite or a desire to be met similar to food. These things are temporary. Paul confirms this by saying in verse 13 that God will destroy them both, referring to food and the stomach. 
But then he states that the body, our sexual purity, is meant for the Lord. Take note here, the Greek word that he uses is porneia, which is where we get the modern-day word of, of a pornography. And so this term actually encompasses a broader spectrum of sexual immorality. So it's not only talking specifically about prostitution, but it's inclusive of sexual sin that's beyond God's design for sex. God's design for sex is in the context of a marriage between a man and a woman. So this phrase here, porneia, can include any distortion of sex, sexual confusion, sexual confusion on orientation and homosexuality, masturbation and lusting. And even Jesus stated in Matthew 5, verse 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Our bodies are for a greater purpose, to be fully raised from our current sinful state and fallen state and to be risen by our Lord Jesus just as he is risen. The greater glory that will come with our bodies is explained here in verse 14. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. The Lord Jesus risen full in glory also raises up and gives life to those that are his. Our bodies are to be resurrected as children of Jesus and to reflect his glory and not to be confused with what is deemed legal or acceptable by the world. Let's move on now to our second point in today's scripture, the point of connection. And this is talking about sex and the connecting point of it with our bodies as well as with the church. We'll be looking here at verses 15 to 17. Paul continues his point regarding sexual immorality and how sex and purity is closely linked to the church and what the church is and our identity in Christ and the significance of that connection. So verses 15 to 17. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Paul starts off this section with rhetoric and questioning the church again. As a reminder, he asks, Did you already forget that your lives are changed and set apart when you follow Jesus? In these verses, the fourth and fifth time in chapter 6, this is the fourth and fifth time in chapter 6 that he uses that phrase, Do you not know? Do you understand? To emphasize the foundational truths for the Christian church. In these verses, Paul is really looking at three key parts of how sex connects but also how as a body of believers, we are also connected together and we're also connected with Jesus. And so the act of sex itself was designed by God as a means of connection between a husband and a wife. In that context, there is fulfillment, vulnerability, and bonding. Paul's alluding here to Genesis 2.24 when God explains his design for marriage and sex. Therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And God's design, sex, is a blessing. In the fall and the result of sex outside of this context, sex is a curse that can bring ruin. In a biblical sense, there is no such thing as just casual, carefree sex. A person pursuing a casual sexual encounter outside of this context of marriage they may not intend or even be sure that there is a commitment level with that partner to become one flesh. But in the design of sex, 
and of giving of, of self to the other person, it's a weighty commitment to think about and becoming one flesh, not just some fleeting heat of the moment passion event, but the act of coming together as one flesh. In our discussion of this connection of the body, we also need to understand that believers are not isolated and individuals that here we're looking at two connection points here within the body. First, the, each member is connected together with other members of the church, of the body of Christ, and so they're intimately linked together as one body together. The second is that we are also of one body and linked and connected with Jesus Christ. So the first connecting point is the members of the church together. Paul expands on this idea that the believers are the body of Christ together in Ephesians 1 verse 22 to 23, that believers are united together closely and members of the body that Jesus is the head over all things to the church. So here Paul is showing, further showing the connection of the body and that whatever happens to a member of the body of Christ, it's connected to the rest of the body. In verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? So I then take the members of Christ and then make them members of a prostitute? Never. So engaging in sexual immorality will disgrace the entire body of Christ linked together, that body to sexual immorality. If you listen to that, that actually really gives us a really important responsibility and duty as the body of Christ and as covenanted members together. We need to be on the lookout for sexual immorality in our church. We need to hold each other accountable and to lift each other up and encourage when it is confessed and admitted. There shouldn't be a passive member of our church membership when the sin of sexual immorality is involved. We need to be vigilant. This reminds me of an illustration I heard many years ago at a conference where there was a visitor to this island and the inhabitants of the island, the people there, there was a river with alligators swimming in it. And so if you went near that river, then you would get uh, one of your limbs bit off. And so the visitor came to this island, he just saw many people that were missing legs or missing arms, but it was a cultural faux pas, like they did not talk about that at all. They never spoke about the river and the alligators. They thought it was an embarrassment to talk about it and kind of awkward, so they just never spoke about it. But it just kept happening, people kept losing arms and legs. And so this visitor to the island just confused, like, why don't we talk about this? Why don't we put fences and safeguards and rails up to protect our community so we don't get our arms and legs bitten off? And so you can see the importance that we need to bring things to light, to talk and discuss together something that's damaging and dangerous. And again, we can see just the importance of joining together as a church, of being covenant together to discuss these kind of things. If you're visiting, if you are trying out WSBC, we highly encourage you to, to attend our membership classes. That it is a new idea of membership for some of you, but that it is an idea where we are able to hold each other accountable, able to grow together as a body, to be covenanted together as the body of Christ. The second point here of connection uh, is linked to the head of this body, who is Jesus Christ. And so because our bodies are members of Christ, Therefore, where holy, it will be wrong to use our bodies for unholy purposes. This directly goes against this dualism philosophy, again, that is expressed in Corinth, that you can have the, the body and the physical side that does evil, and you have the soul and the spiritual side that is innately good. But here Paul shows again in verse 17 that anyone who is joined to the Lord becomes one 
spirit with him. So because our bodies are members of Christ, it will be wrong to profane our bodies. And therefore, in extension, we would be profaning Christ's body by linking our bodies to a prostitute or sexual immorality, the broader sense of that. And so we see again just how the design of sex is a connection that is beyond just the physical act. We also see that the structure and the connectedness of the body of the church and of course to Christ means that any sexual immorality that occurs within the church is brought into that body of believers. Let's look at our third and final point of cost. At what cost? And this is verses 18 to 20. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. In these last few verses, Paul looks at what the cost of sexual immorality is. He first commands the church to flee from sexual immorality, not to stand our ground or try to do our best to fight and resist, but to actively run away from it. A famous example is Joseph from Genesis 39, when Joseph flees from temptation. And so it's seen here, again, the verb flee in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, when Paul warns us to flee also from idolatry, from worshiping false gods. Again, sexual immorality here isn't just limited to prostitution. It's encompassing the wide range of, of anything outside of sexual intercourse with your spouse. And so we should be fleeing from sexual gratification and avoiding any sources of these temptations, specific websites or books or videos or any other stumbling blocks. Why is this so important? What is the cost of sin? We can think of the cost of sin here and remember as a person, place, and price. Person, place, and price, not thing. The first reason why it's important to flee is the person. As stated in verse 18, every other sin is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Again, sexual sin is more than just a physical external action. Here Paul is again showing us the nature of sexual sin coming from inside the person, sinning against their own body. Engaging in sexual encounters outside of God's design and plan can leave deeper emotional scarring, brokenness, isolation, and even guilt. It isn't simply a physical act that's just done on the outside and finished. Many studies have also shown the damaging effects of pornography with internal feelings of addiction, of aggression, depression, distorted beliefs and expectations, insecurity, and isolation. You can see isolation here happens so what was meant to be an act designed by God as a means of bringing closer a husband and a wife in the right marriage context in its fallen state now actually does the opposite. It creates a feeling of isolation and being separated from others. The second important cost to remember here is place. Specifically, your body is a place. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. This is a point that's easily forgotten. We hear about it and again, here in the sixth time, Paul knows that. So he asked rhetorically, do you not know? Church, do you not know your body is a temple for the Holy Spirit? The temple is a sacred place, the place that God is. And so this is a place that needs to be pure from any immorality and any sin. 
So there's no separation, nowhere that we can allow sin to hide to exist in our bodies. If our bodies are a temple and serve as a temple, a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. And here the wording that Paul chooses is very important. He's using this to get a specific imagery in the minds of the Corinthian church. He uses the word nas for temple. That is specifically referring to the most inner sanctuary of the temple, the holy of holies, God's dwelling place, not just the entire temple itself. And so this is truly the most holy and the most intimate of places with God. Because the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, our bodies belong to God and not to ourselves. And that takes us to the last important point here is the cost, the cost of our bodies, the cost of sexual immorality. Paul concludes this part saying that you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. How often do we hear that and how often do we take that for granted that we were bought by Jesus, that we were saved by Jesus? The language Paul uses here in these verses would be similar to what they use in the slave markets where a buyer would buy slaves for a specific price. These slaves would then transfer ownership and they would be, need to obey their new master, whoever bought them. And so we do not have freedom. We are slaves. We're slaves to sin. We're slaves to this world. But through the price of his blood, of Jesus' perfect sinless life, he's able to atone and pay for that price. And he is our master. He's bought our freedom. He's transferred ownership from sin and hell to Jesus and heaven. And so the act of prostitution is paying a price in order to indulge in sexual gratification and also sexual immorality. This is a price in monetary terms, a set amount, but in spiritual and eternal terms, the price of an unrepentant heart is much deeper. It's the eternity of separation from God, of hell. Here Paul makes a unique connection and uses that same idea telling the church that we indeed, like the prostitutes, we were bought at a price. That this price is one that is far too steep for any one of us to afford that only the blood of Jesus, the Son of God, the perfect Lamb and sacrifice could atone for. He could pay for our sins, buying our freedom from condemnation and suffering. That He was the one that paid the ultimate price and cost for our sins. We should conclude. We looked at the countertop and we could see how it represents our church where there's cracks or there's issues that may dig deeper how we need to tend to these cracks as a church and not just brush them off and clean off the surface. But we can look a little farther and see how that also represents the state of our hearts. Even the smallest cracks on the counter will still allow some water to seep in slowly, eroding from the inside. And all the while the outside may not look changed, but over time this unseen damage will come to the surface and we'll see how much damage was really done. Our hearts may be good at hiding these sins. We may be good at brushing it off. But over time, it's going to resurface and reveal the extensive damage done. So what if your life has already been marked by, by struggles, by sexual sin and brokenness? God can still forgive, and He loves those with history. And we can dwell on 1 Corinthians here 6.20. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. While many in our society may have the thinking that having sexual freedom means carefree, loose relationships, it actually results in a stronger and more devastating effect, a stronger bondage to sin, to this lifestyle. We're never fully in control. We aren't our own person. If we choose sexual freedom 
and immorality, we're not our own. We are slaves to that. We're slaves to sin. But Paul writes here an imperative to the church, a command as a church that we're to go and glorify God in our body. The cost of sin is high. It costs us our lives. It's a price that we cannot afford. It will cost the health of the church body. Not repenting will result in an eternity suffering in hell. But the real true cost of that is the innocent blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ, of the spotless lamb. And that the price of our lives is his righteousness. Let's pray. Father God, we worship you, Lord, as, as, as King David wrote, Lord, to create in us a clean heart, to renew a right, renew a right spirit within us. Lord God, we need the work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit in our lives. Lord God, we come to you as people that are fallen, as people that are in need of a Savior, in need of redemption. Lord, and each day we're in need of, of continual growth and sanctification. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.